It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Good morning and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of Melbourne at 3CR and syndicated around Australia's community radio network and podcasted on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au or whichever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at bze.techshow. My name's Laura and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael. Good morning, Laura. Today we'll be talking with Mark Watts, the Executive Director of C40, a network of the world's megacities taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. He leads a growing team of around 80 staff that work with participating cities to address climate risks and impact locally and globally. He has a Master's in Philosophy, History and Politics from Nottingham University. Before joining C40, Mark was the Director of Arabs, energy consulting team based in London. Prior to joining Arabs as the director in 2008, he was the climate change and sustainable transport advisor to the mayor of London, in which the role the London Evening Standard described him as the intellectual force behind Ken Livingstone's drive to make London a leading light of the battleground against global warming. He led the development in London's groundbreaking Climate Change Action Plan, and the associated program of projects to reduce London's carbon emissions by 60% by 2025. So Mark joins us in Melbourne this week as he was presenting along with other local experts at the Climate Action Cities and Citizens New Leaders Lecture. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Now, we do like to start off these interviews by getting a bit of an idea of how people have become interested in the renewable sector. So how have you become so involved in sustainable transport and cities? Well, I have to be honest, because I was instructed to get interested. So when I worked for Ken Livingston, uh, the then Mayor of London, uh, I was uh, a political advisor and initially was focusing on transport. That was the, the area where the Mayor had biggest powers in, in London, bringing in uh, road pricing indeed uh, in London was one of the things. And one day the Mayor walked into my office, put a, a book down on my desk, collapsed by Jared Diamond, told me to read it over the weekend and come back and give him a pricey, which I did. And then he said, right, you're now my climate change advisor. I'd like you to develop a climate change strategy and a team. Go away. Go away and do so. And I became enthused ever since. Oh, great. I was given that book for Christmas two years ago. <laughs> and what was your experience getting London's climate change action plan to the forefront of current policy? Well, it was really interesting because when we started, this is now sort of 2004 time, there were very few major cities, mayors, that saw climate change as their responsibility. And indeed, most of the people in the mayoral administration in London just thought this was one of the fads of the mayor. It would go away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and why was I wasting my time doing this when I should be focusing on the big issues of, of the transport and the tube and everything? But actually, very quickly, um, I mean, I, I became completely convinced that it was a central issue and something that mayors could really do something about. But very quickly, it became one of those issues that the most dynamic people within the council wanted to work on because they could see it was somewhere where we could really make a difference. And actually, in London's case, we really gained from recognising we didn't have the skills and the knowledge 
ourselves and looking out to the rest of the world and learning from Stockholm and Copenhagen and San Francisco. Uh, and indeed, that's how the C40 was born because we decided we were gaining so much from talking to other cities, we ought to make it an ongoing thing. Absolutely. And so um, getting on to C40 cities, for those like myself who were unable to attend the Climate Action Cities and Citizens Lecture last night, can you give us a brief synopsis of the event? Well, I hope it was a very positive thing. I'm certainly in a very positive frame of mind. We've come back from Paris, where finally at COP21 there was an agreement made between the nation states of the world. Getting 192 governmental leaders to agree anything is a major thing, and I'm not saying that in a kind of kind of critical sense. It is a big, big thing. But to get such an aspirational treaty with a, a target to constrain global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, which is very, very hard, I think really has put a bounce in the step of everybody working in climate change. And, and for us the, in the city's world, what was really noticeable was just how important the non-state actors were in giving the certainty to the national political leaders that there really was a groundswell behind making an agreement and there are others who are going to take some of the strain of delivering what is an incredibly difficult target. I think for many of us, uh, Mark, in, in general population, C40 has been flying right under the radar. radar. So can you give us a, an overview? You said it started out of that London thing. What it is, uh, where it's at now? Yeah, we're, we're 10 years old and actually the the principle behind C40 is very much the same today as it was when we were created, which is that... Um, Mayors, city leaders have got a significant role to play in tackling climate change because the majority of the world live in cities and over 70% of energy uh, is consumed there. Um, and that the best way to accelerate climate action in the big cities is through sharing of best practice between political leaders and indeed the, the civil servants that, that work for them. And so at its heart, C40 is just, it's a it's a collaboration, it's a sharing. We, the staff, uh, there are now 80 or so of us around the world, we facilitate conversations between member cities. But we do so on the basis of very rigorous data analysis. So there's no fees. Melbourne doesn't pay a fee to be part of C40. We're funded philanthropically, but we require a lot of data. You've got 40 staff funded phil philanthropically. Uh, 80. 80. Yeah, sorry, yeah. 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 sorry that you've got yeah. the 40 in my head. Yeah, yeah and, and through some, uh, particularly in the, in the first instance, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, and one of the ri world's richest people, but now British philanthropy and uh, a Danish uh, foundation also, as well as some, some corporates now starting to put in. Mm -hmm. some money but our job as the staff is is not to tell the cities what to do but to identify things that have been delivered really well in one city that could be transferred to others and work mm -hmm. out which are the right cities to have that conversation together and i interrupted you were just starting to talk about the rigorous data analysis yes we now require as a condition of membership that all of our cities sign up to something called the compact of mayors which was uh, launched a year ago and is analogous to the Paris Agreement. It's like the Paris Agreement for uh, for cities. And in fact, Melbourne was one of the first cities to fully comply with mm -hmm. the compact. And it requires that each city reports its emission using a global standard, uh, which means that we can compare between cities. They set a robust target for emission reduction and for climate resilience. And they've got an action plan in place for how that can be achieved. And what we then do is we look at that plan and we measure progress on it and we try and spur through collaboration and competition each city to be more ambitious. Which brings me to two points and before we get into the detail of what you see as a low carbon city, 
Um, you mentioned last night um, the, the concept of an activist mayor and, in fact, doing being able to do stuff that even national governments couldn't do. Can you talk to that? Because that excited me. Yeah, well, I, th- I think one of the, the trends that we see uh, in global politics at the moment is, on the one hand, a negative, a real inability of the nation state, the presidents and the prime ministers, to solve global problems. And climate change is perhaps the the worst, biggest example, but there are many others. And our, our current political situation is a prime example. Mm. We've got a prime minister enthralled by his right and unable to act on what we believe he really believes. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, 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 and unfortunately mirrored in many, many other countries um, around the world. And, you know, at a, at a kind of political level, when nation states come together, they, if they can't agree, it te- generally ends badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they yes. confront each other with armies <laughs> yes. and with trade barriers. What you find at the, at the city's level is something rather different because whilst there's absolutely a competition between the big cities of the world, I mean, mm. New York and London, for example, really tangibly are in com- competition with each other for the, to be the headquarters for big firms, who's got the biggest financial industry, mm. etc., when they compete with each other, it's a race to the top, not to the bottom. Mm, so the way that's another lovely concept, yeah. And they, it, it, we talked about this a little last night, and they're they're competing by investing in the city, make the public transport infrastructure better, so that the city's more efficient place to get around, and and businesses willing to ro- locate, make the cultural offering better, make the city less polluted, because we know in every mm. city that's what people, what citizens demand. So you can attract the best and the brightest people, and so it, it has this kind of positive. Uh, a, a competition, but also a real ability um, to collaborate because no one's swapping sort of trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're kind of they're, they're swapping great ideas, and um, ideas travel rather well around the world. It turns. And there was even talk of an award for the best thieved idea, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, the current the, the most mayor, successful. The mayor of London, Boris Johnson, in he was a, got a wonderful turn, turn of, of phrase. But yes, he said we should have a, a, a prize for the biggest thief. <laughs> Good, I love it. So getting onto the guts of it, um, we'd like you to tell us about your concepts of a low-carbon city. And I, I know you mentioned three main points last night, uh, public transport, including cycling and walking, walking in that, um, packed, dense cities and highly coordinated cities. Can you address each of those points for us? Yeah, and of course, you know, there's a risk in trying to generalise and every, every city is unique. But for those who, who like their philosophy, uh, we work on the, the kind of Hegelian principle that everything is a unique combination of universal elements. And what we're trying to do in C40 is find the universal, not the unique. And so if you look broadly across all of the main cities of the world and listening to what the mayors are saying, you'd find generally speaking... The successful cities of the future are, are likely to be those that are, are compact and dense in their spatial design, mm-hmm. not sprawling, large suburbs, uh, as we see in North America and indeed in, in Australia, but large large parts of the world that have very high degrees of mo- mobility because that's what makes successful economies these days and that's what mm-hmm. citizens demand. But that mobility is is based on mass transit because that's much more efficient in terms of levels of pollution and indeed speed and uh, regularity of travel. But I think increasingly we'll be going back, if you want to put it that way, but I'd think of it as going forwards to uh, strong, wealthy societies based on the bike and Mm -hmm. two feet 
walking as the primary modes of transport. But the third of these sort of three Cs, and, and here I, I'm stealing, this is from the, the New Climate Economy Commission's really fantastic report on, on cities, is the idea that cities really need to be much more coordinated. So both at the level of, of running on data, so they're making decisions based on a concrete analysis of what's likely to have the best outcome, that there's, uh, we move away from the sort of silo mentality in government, so the transport department and the waste department are working together on strategies rather than separately. But perhaps most importantly of all in the context of C40, that I think the most successful mayors, the most successful cities, will be the ones that are, are, are most willing to look outwards. Don't try and find all the solutions in their own council or in their own city but look outside and bring the best ideas so that they adopt them uh, and transform them to, to the particular circumstances of their own place. So looking outward and ex some examples of some cities that um, are achieving public transport in a low-carbon manner, we have trams trains that are obviously not carbon intensive. What are we seeing for bus fleets around the world? Is there some good examples happening? Well, actually, the really interesting thing in, in the mass transit has been the rise from almost nowhere of, of bus rapid transit. So the idea that you can use overground buses to, to provide the kind of express services that metros uh, mm -hmm. provide in cities that are, are able to, to build and can afford to, to, to build them. And it's an idea that started in, in Latin America, in Curitiba, in Bogota, in Colombia, and then it spread like wildfire across Latin America. Every C40 city in Latin America now mm -hmm. has major bus rapid transit. Rio, where I spend a lot of time because they're the, the chair of our organisation, they've built 150 kilometres of bus rapid transit in just six years, and it's transformed the proportion of people that have access to public transport from 18%, 1.8% to over 60% in six years. So it's, it's been a totally transformatory technology, but it's now spread from the south to the global north. And in fact, of the 150 cities in the world that have bus rapid transit today, the majority are in the west and in, and in richer countries. And uh, I, I don't know how familiar the term is, is here. Uh, no, I was going to ask you. I just assumed at first you meant great fleets using the existing roads, but it sounds like you're actually talking about dedicated roads. Yeah, very much so. So the concept, and it was uh, an amazing character, Jaime Lerner, the former mayor of Curitiba, an architect who, when faced with a huge cut in public expenditure in his city in the uh, early 1980s, realised they couldn't afford a metro and had to, but the city was completely getting blocked by traffic congestion, mm -hmm. some of the worst in, in, in Brazil at that time, highest levels of car ownership. And he wanted to, correct, to make buses a form of transport that people aspired to use. And I, I mentioned last night you know, this terrible thing that the, the former British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, once said, that you see a man on a bus aged over 30, you know you're looking at a failure. And I think that, that mentality really infused transport planning around the world. So what Jaime Lerner did in Curitiba is he designed, A, the bus system to be rapid, so to come from the outer suburbs into the city centre with dedicated bus lanes that they meant they weren't getting snarled up in traffic, the traffic lights working in, in their favour, but high quality buses, covered uh, boarding place, places so that you were protected from the sun and, and the rain in, in other countries, flat level to get on, so you felt like this was a premium service, not a, not a, a low cost service. Mm. Mm. So you need to give the other half of that the advanced city is where you see a rich man on a bus. Yeah, I mean, this is the wonderful, wonderful phrase of that. Now, re-elected mayor of, of Bogota, Enrico Penalosa, that a, a successful city is not where the poor drive cars, but where the rich use the bus. Mm. Yeah.
So these buses, um, are they still using fossil fuels or to what extent are they going electric and, and um, how is the West performing compared to China and so on? Well, at the moment they're mostly using fossil fuels, but I think that's pretty much dead uh, in, in bus technology. Electric vehicles, I think cars is still a little long way off to be on a mass level, but the, the age of the electric bus is, is just beginning. And it's absolutely starting in, in China. We were stunned when... Uh, Chinese cities started to join the C40 in the last 18 months and we've been running a low emission vehicle network for almost a decade uh, and the m best performing cities maybe had 10 electric buses on the road. Shenzhen joined and said, what is this? We have a thousand electric <laughs> buses. Our entire fleet of 8,000 will be electric within three years' time. Mm. Nanjing down the road has got 4,000 public transport electric, fully electric vehicles already. Mm. Beijing's just ordered a thousand. And they built a, a domestic industry, BYD and others, uh, manufacturing buses, which this had a, a tremendously galvanizing effect on the mayors in C40, mm -hmm. who then uh, gathered together, created the Clean Bus Declaration, which was really a message to the bus manufacturers in Europe and, and South America and North America to say, if you don't start producing electric buses at a price we can afford rather than these crazy premiums, we're going to buy the Chinese ones. But, but actually, the truth is here, when you look at the numbers, I think there's a lot of too much caution here. When you look at the numbers, even on the small scale in, in European and American cities, ele electric buses are already cheaper than diesel on their life term, mm -hmm. lifetime costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's very quickly, I, I see the whole bus networks around the world going electric. And so the, okay. we're making two leaps forward here. First of all, by going to buses instead of cars, you, you're getting a huge saving in fossil fuels. Mm. But then the final leap is to go to the electric bus. Are, are these truly elect fully electric or hybrid at the moment? Yes, yeah, so, the, so the, the, the Chinese model is fully electric buses. Mm. Uh, in my, my own city in London, they're just trialling the double-decker uh, electric bus. And that, that's a, that is a, you know, it's a bigger, bigger issue where you're near that. But clearly the single decks work. But you're right, the, the big saving comes from the shift from car to public transport. The concentration even if it's, of it, yeah. Even if it's, even it's diesel. And, and both in pollution terms, but also actually in the aesthetics of the city, it's mm. just not possible to have a city that functions once it gets to a, a you know half a million people or so, where everybody drives a private car, and and that kind of wonderful dream of the car-based suburban city that we we that sort of Los Angeles and others mm. uh, made in the in the nineteen fifties. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Yeah, mm. it. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, so bicycles. I mean, I love that Melbourne is more and more becoming bicycle accessible. Cecil. And you said, like, in Latin America, there was specific roads made for buses and so forth. Is this something that is happening in urban planning around the world for bikes as well? Yeah, I, I think it's perhaps the, the most significant kind of revolution, if you want to use that, that word. When I, when I started as a, a transport advisor to the mayor of London 16 years ago, I was literally laughed at for suggesting to the senior transport officials that we should spend more money on bikes. And it was, they just said, you know, this is big boy stuff. You know, don't mess around with your bloody bicycles. But actually now you'd struggle to find a major city in the world that isn't desperately trying to hold on to the cycling that's already got and, in, and increase it. And Latin America, again, is interesting because these typically are cities, the big cities, that have been really dominated by the car to some, uh, creating some significant problem. But in, in, I was saying last night in the, the city of Rio, when I first met the, the mayor there, who's an extraordinary character, Eduardo Pires, he arrived very late for our meeting, covered in dust. 
and sort of said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm like, I've just been blowing up a six lane highway. And he had literally dynamited that morning, the elevated six lane highway that went through the central business district. And that has now been turned into wonderful public space, beautiful new museums. Uh, a light rail connects the central business district with the newly developed port area, but also 80 kilometres of new cycle lane that now mean you can cycle along the beautiful coastline uh, of Rio uh, from the from the financial district right through to the beaches of Copacabana and Ipanema. Sounds mm. gorgeous. Sounds like my way to commute. <laughs> it <laughs> I is. I love it. Um, for those of you who have just joined us, we're speaking with Mark Watts, discussing C40 cities uh, and the greater role that they can play in becoming more carbon efficient and going people friendly <laughs> yes exactly so i wanted to discuss coordinated cities was one of the criterias that you had uh, and i find this interesting because i imagine that mega cities around the world in developing nations especially uh, don't have a huge amount of council uh, coordination so what kind of role have we seen uh, technology playing in these cities around the world well i think it's it's so in the last 10 years, the ability to get real hard data about how the city is actually operating, how people are actually moving, how they're actually and where they're using energy is really starting to transform the ability to plan. And you know, plan had become a little bit of a dirty word in, in, sort of in governance generally, but when you're facing an existential problem like climate change, you have to plan. You really have to understand precisely where the energy is being consumed and where the opportunity is to re- reduce it, and in a way that, that, that keeps a, a highly uh, attractive and, and livable city. And so I think you know some great, great in- examples around the world. New York has been one of the cities that's really taken a grip of how to reduce emissions from its building stock. In their case, 70, almost 80% of their carbon emissions come from energy consumed in buildings. It's an incredibly densely populated, uh, rather sort of small city, actually. Um, and, but what, they, what they've started with is first just the mandatory benchmarking. So every major building has to provide the data on its energy consumption and its carbon footprint. And that alone has spurred... Uh, voluntary action by building owners when they realise the energy savings that that could be made. But now they're moving to mandatory retrofitting of buildings Mm. every 10 years so that gradually they'll They'll raise them all up to a much more uh, energy efficient standard. And their their estimate, and they're well on track, is they will cut the carbon emissions from commercial buildings and and public sector buildings in in New York by 35% uh, through this kind of real focus on, on, on data. That's amazing. Yeah. So you also um, talk about bioreactive buildings as, as part oh, of this yes. move. <laughs> Tell us what's happening there. Well, listen, I, 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 I'll try and avoid too much of a focus that, on that technology is going to save us, but there are some really exciting things out there. And uh, in, in Hamburg and, and Paris now, quite separately, they have been instigating the bioreactive facade. And this is where you grow microalgae on the side of buildings, on the facade of buildings, in a kind of glass outer casing that provides both uh, an insulating capacity, both against sort of too much heat, too much cold. But using simple photosynthesis, we have a potential energy uh, source growing on the sides of the building. It's rather beautiful. It changes colour. In the, in the sunlight, uh, and it's you know there's a bit of bit of movement going on there. But in the case of Hamburg, the algae is then taken out and gasified, and then used to generate renewable e- electricity. And for the one experimental building, it's providing all of the electricity needs of that 
of that building. Wow. It's an office block. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Paris's case, there's slightly differently. There's a real move to urban farming in Paris at the moment. And so they're taking the algae and using it as compost for the, the urban farms. Okay, so it's not uh, a slime-covered building. It's actually in a, <laughs> in a glass sleeve yeah. of some sort. <laughs> Okay, um, the White Roofs movement, are the C40 mayors doing anything with that? Yeah, we have a cool cities network. So for the the large number of of cities that are suffering from the impact of climate change, but the particular problem of the urban heat island effect when Mm -hmm. when temperatures can be five or six degrees higher in the city than in the rural areas. And actually, you know, this is one of those really, really simple uh, measures, just simply painting the roofs white. New York's been one of of those that have, have done it can lead to a 20% reduction in mm. uh, energy consumption uh, of that building. So a, a reducing in, a reduction in emissions, but as well as making the building livable, um, a resilience to changing temperatures and keeping uh, the, the ambient temperature down to something that people can survive in. That 20% is an astonishing figure. That, that I assume, would depend on how tall the building is. If it's a multi-storey, it won't have nearly as great an of effect. Of course. So yeah. I, I'm giving you know, the, the top end of the figure yep. and, and at the bottom end for a... I mean, you wouldn't... Probably a, a, a white roof for a tower block is not the most efficient mm-hmm. use of that roof space. Mm-hmm. You would be more likely to invest in, in solar panels on the roof or, or maybe on, a, on a, a green roof. Sounds like there's a tier of options. The, the cheapest is to, uh, to go white roof and then maybe you go solar panels and, and um, if you want to go past that, you go to a green roof and, yeah. and waterproof it and grow things and stuff. Um, what's happening in waste amongst the C40 group? Well, I thought it was interesting last night. There was quite a debate about this. So... Um, there's a, in general, there's there's a a move to zero waste uh, to landfill, uh, mm-hmm. and cities like San Francisco, Freiburg in Germany are, are, are really at the forefront of that. They're now at around seventy five, eighty percent recycling rates, and have got landfilled waste down to five or ten percent. But uh, but I was interested in last in uh, introducing last night. Uh, an experimental program in Houston, which I don't necessarily advocate, but I think it really needs to be looked at, which is moving away from the the perceived wisdom in waste management of the last decade or so mm-hmm. that we need to households should separate uh, recyclables sometimes in as many as seven or eight different bins. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's the the most efficient way to then get the processing happening. Houston are going for one bin for all. You chuck everything in the same bin, mm. and then it's a fully mechanised uh, sorting. They have done this purely on the basis of data, to come back to our, our earlier discussion. Mm. Their calculation is through the reduced truck movements, uh, in the not needing lots of different trucks collecting the different mm. types of recyclables, they can reduce uh, 5,000 tr- uh, truck movements over a, a year, with a significant reduction in carbon emissions and traffic congestion, and that the overall cost of the mechanised programme over its lifetime will be the same or lower than households recycling. What we discussed last night, and there was I know there was quite a backlash mm. in the room in uh, in Australia, but in, interesting I thought is it's not very popular because people rather like recycling <laughs> and feeling that they're doing their bit, and this takes it out of their hands. Yeah, so I guess like when the cake mixes, you didn't have to add your egg and no one wanted them. But on the other hand, I, I didn't um, say this at the talk last night, but I did recently talk to a mayor of a central Victorian council and they just introduced triple bins and they were having a really negative reaction and people deliberately sabotaging the waste stream, mm. um, the recycling stream. So but maybe that's just a, a getting used to thing. Um, health benefits of going this way or actually tangible cost benefits can you speak to that at all is are there any i, I mean absolutely are we this is an area where we need more evidence but i think the macroeconomic case is now very very well made the new climate economy commission uh has 
I think, conclusively demonstrated that it's it's not a question of what is the cost of going onto a low carbon development pathway versus a high carbon. It's that it's what are the benefits, and mm. if you the quicker particularly in a city case, move to a low-carbon development pathway, the faster living standards will rise and the stronger will be economic performance. But at the at more at the, the micro level, we're now starting to get some really good data. So Copenhagen, one of the world's great cycling cities, 45% of trips to work by, by bicycle, they've analysed that for the average trip, which is about four kilometres in Copenhagen, there's a dollar saving to their health budget because individuals are more healthy and there's less pollution put in the air for everybody else to breathe. And at C40 now, we're going to be helping cities do much more of that analysis so that you can see the co-benefits, the social and economic benefits exactly, of climate action. very valuable and powerful argument, won't it? Um, we are out of time. I'd just like you briefly to cover one more thing. Um, you mentioned again at the lecture last night about following on from Paris, what are we aiming for and working out the... Um, emissions per person basically uh, where are the c40 cities at in what's the target where are the c40 cities at in meeting that and where is australia at well not great news for australia but um go <laughs> on <laughs> we're, we're not surprised <laughs> <laughs> so the target we're going to need to get to I, I we'll have to wait for the latest scientific analysis on this but it's going to be around 1.5 tons per person uh and per annum per annum mm-hmm. uh uh, and you look at Australia at the moment, it's around 16.5. In Europe, 6, 7%, 6 or 7 tonnes rather. Uh, North America is similar to Australia. China is just over, just over 7 uh, in the big cities. So there's a long, long way to go. Um, you can see that it's possible. So two, three of our Scandinavian cities are, are hovering around the 2 tonne, 2.5 tonne per person. Well, they're Not, close. So <laughs> Stockholm uh, and Copenhagen in, in particular. Um And cities like Portland in the United States uh, have clearly demonstrated a decoupling between economic growth and and, and emissions growth. I think the real, you know, the the difficult task here in Australia is your your grid is just so carbon intensive Mm. and the mayor can only take things uh, so far. But I was intrigued talking um, to Councillor Aaron Aaron Wood yesterday and today about this this fantastic sounding Melbourne Renewable Energy Project and the way that the city is leading the kind of aggregation of demand Mm. for renewable energy, which might be based outside of the city. It's a really inspiring thing. I think it's been inspired by what Canberra has done. Um, The ACT tendered out for their renewable energy and now Melbourne's picking up that baton, I think. Mm. Well, mm. I think this is something that Australia will be giving to the world. I see lots of cities. Mm. I'm going to be taking this back to a lot of our members. And it is being open sourced, so the, the documents to do that are being made available to every council, every city. Oh, um, so it is a real contribution, yeah. Great. I think we're out of time now, Laura. We are. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Thank you. Uh, the Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to the show or any of our other ones, you can do so via our website at bze.org.au or any podcasting app you choose to use. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. And thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week.